Hello, my name's Florence. Welcome to the OBS pod. I'm an NHS obstetrician, hoping to share some thoughts and experiences about my working life. Perhaps you enjoy Call the Midwife, maybe birth fascinates you, or you're simply curious about what exactly an obstetrician is. You might be pregnant and preparing for birth. Perhaps you work in maternity and want to know what makes your obstetric colleagues tick, or you want some fresh ideas and inspiration. Whichever of these is the case, and for that matter, anyone else that's interested, the OBSPOD is for you. Episode 8, Motherhood Part 2. So I've told you in the last episode how I felt during pregnancy. But what about birth itself? Well, despite my job, I thought I'd breeze through it. After all, what were my childbearing hips for? I'd grown up with stories of my mother's birth and my grandmother's births, and they'd all been relatively straightforward. I'd prepared myself well. I'd done antenatal classes And I'd even spent the last few months thinking about how I was sitting at home, sitting backwards on a chair with my tummy forwards as instructed by optimal fetal positioning so that I had the best chance of my baby being in a good position before labour. So what could go wrong? Well, I was due before Christmas with my first baby and Christmas came and went And it started to feel a little bit like I was going to be pregnant forever. All the other babies in my NCT class had been born. And I started to face the realisation that I might have to have an induction of labour. And because it was over the Christmas period, actually, this wasn't scheduled until the new year when I was going to be 42 plus one. But one evening... 11 days overdue, there was a pop and a gush and my waters had gone. So I duly went into hospital and got checked out. Everything was fine and I got sent home to wait for labour to establish. I was having irregular contractions and slightly stupidly, I ended up sitting up most of the night, breathing through my contractions and watching a film while my husband went to bed. And the next day, ringing the midwife, I was so determined to get myself into labour that I actually walked the 10 to 15 minute walk down to my local clinic, pausing for contractions, pausing and breathing through on the pavement and walking down to the clinic to the midwife to be examined and make a plan. The results were extremely disappointing. I was only three centimetres and was told I needed to be admitted to have a hormone drip syntocinum. I was reluctant. Despite my medical knowledge, this wasn't how I wanted my labour to go and I felt that it was a little bit premature. I wanted more time for my labour to get going naturally. So I took my time and I went in by five o'clock in the evening. The staff seemed really keen for me to have an epidural because I was going to have the hormone drip. And although I knew lots of women did have epidural with the hormone drip, I didn't want to have an epidural to start off with. 
So I refused that and started the hormone drips in Tosinon, pacing the room, keeping active, keeping upright, doing everything possible to try and get my labour going and reduce the risk of intervention. Part of the way through, there was a consultant ward round and I was asked, did I want Professor X, very eminent Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology, to come in as part of the ward round? And the only thought that went through my mind was, oh my God, no, I don't want to meet the professor in this situation when I'm in labour in case in future I want to work here or in case in future I meet him on a professional basis. I don't want him to remember me half naked in labour. And in retrospect, that was a bit of a bizarre thing to think because actually maybe it would have been good to meet him and have his advice. But in any case, I decided not to. And there's always a bit of a dilemma when you're a midwife or obstetrician, whether you give birth where you work, where everyone knows you and you mix your personal life up with your professional life, or whether you go somewhere a bit more incognito where you're not known. And for me, this wasn't really a choice because I wasn't working anywhere near where I lived. It would be completely stupid for me to go halfway across London to give birth to my baby uh, when they're perfectly good hospitals local to me. So it wasn't really a choice I faced. And now, in some ways, I wish that had been an option. At the time, I thought it was good that I was incognito and that if I was out of control and not doing well in my labour, that nobody would know. But actually, maybe it would have been good to be surrounded by people I knew um, and people that really cared about what was happening to me. And that's not to say that people don't care if they don't know you, but it's a slightly different um, dynamic, different relationship. So after four hours on the syntocinon hormone, there's absolutely no change in my cervix. The neck of the womb wasn't opening up any further at all. And I was getting pretty tired. So I felt I gave in. I had the epidural. And then I had another eight hours of the syntocinon hormone. So I had 12 hours in total and absolutely nothing happened. At this point, the registrar came in because I was having some changes in my baby's heartbeat and he gave me the option of continuing or having a cesarean at this point. My husband was very concerned about whether this registrar was more senior than me and interrogated the registrar as to what his experience was um, before he decided whether he was suitable to look after me. The way the registrar talked to me about the decision was, well, you can carry on and you might get fully dilated, but your baby is in a back-to-back position. And so you could end up with quite a difficult instrumental birth, or you could have an emergency cesarean later, or you could have an emergency cesarean now. Didn't really feel like much of a choice really felt like cesarean was inevitable. 
So despite having an epidural, my epidural didn't work. So when I went into theatre, I had to undergo a spinal for the surgery. And on the operating table, although I'd been in an obstetric operating theatre a million times, it felt totally different. I felt incredibly vulnerable, laid out on the table, paralysed by the anaesthetic, surrounded by people. I felt like an object. I felt really disconnected, almost like an out-of-body experience. Didn't feel like it was happening to me. And when the baby was born... She was indeed back to back and I just wasn't interested. She was given to my husband to hold next to me. I I didn't even want to look at her. I was so exhausted and had this huge sense of failure and I I just didn't care that there was a baby at the end of it. And... Afterwards, as we got off the operating table and into bed, fortunately for me, the midwife tucked my baby into bed with me. She didn't ask my permission. She just put the baby onto me. And that was absolutely the best thing she could have done because I had this sudden wash of emotion that I was a mother and that this was my baby and that I was attached to her. So I am incredibly grateful for that midwife for just doing that because if she'd asked me, I probably would have said no at that point and that would have been bad. So I moved to recovery and I was in a lot of pain. I was lying absolutely rigid with pain. And I asked if I could have some more painkillers. And I was firmly told by the midwife and then the anaesthetist that I'd had the maximum dose of painkillers and I couldn't have any more. And even though I was a doctor, I accepted what they said and I lay scarcely daring to breathe or move because I was in such pain and I remember watching the clock so I watched the clock hand crawl around for half an hour because I thought that half an hour was a reasonable time at which I could ask again because I didn't want to bother the staff so I remember lying there in agonizing pain watching the clock crawl round. And half an hour later, I asked again. And fortunately for me, there'd been a shift change. And the midwife that came in, in response to my call bell, immediately realised I needed more pain relief and sorted it out. And it was a tremendous sense of relief. So I had a huge sense of failure about my first birth. I cried every time I thought about it. I struggled to talk about it. I would burst into tears any time it was discussed. I I had failed. My body had failed. I had failed. And I think it was the fact that it was so different from my expectations, even with all my 
professional knowledge. My baby cried a lot in the first few weeks. I did succeed in breastfeeding and that was that was good. That made me feel a slightly better mother, the fact that that was successful. But the effect of that first birth was very profound. So in my second pregnancy, I was determined to have a VBAC or a vaginal birth after cesarean. It was really, really important to me to try again. And I mentioned in the last episode, I had a couple of admissions to hospital, um, but I didn't want that to derail me. And I had agreed with my consultant that I would have a cesarean at 41 weeks if I hadn't had my baby because of those two admissions I'd had with bleeding. Typically, I went overdue again, but at 40 weeks and four days, I was sitting in the garden in the afternoon with my toddler and I started to contract, irregular contractions. And once again, I I wanted to keep mobile. I waited. I wanted to let labour establish. So I carried on going about the day as if nothing was happening until the evening when my husband came home and I thought we should go to hospital. So I was admitted because I was three centimetres dilated and contracting irregularly. I dozed through the night with irregular contractions until at 6am I really couldn't bear it anymore and I rang my husband to come back in. I was taken by the midwives and given a room with a birthing pool. Now this hadn't been part of my plan but I got in the pool and it was wonderful. There was warm water, buoyancy, I could move around. I was given Entonox, the gas and air and my memories of that time were absolutely wonderful. I got very giggly with the gas and air. The midwives decided not to let the obstetric team into the room so they wouldn't interfere and I bobbed around in the pool for many hours with the gas and air, extremely happy. Sadly, after many hours, I was still only that three centimetres. Very frustrating. So I got out of the pool and they broke my waters. And then I did have an epidural. And my husband did quite a lot to distract me at this point by reading to me from the newspaper. It was just before a general election. And he read to me some of the manifestos out of the newspaper, which seems completely crackers, but was a very good way of spending a lot of quite boring time. And many hours later, I was still only five centimetres and I was offered the option of a caesarean or the syntocinon hormone drip. And we made a joint decision that caesarean was probably safest at this point. I wasn't wild about having the syntocinon hormone drip, given that my body had tried to establish labour itself. And I knew that my baby was probably bigger than my last baby. So it felt like a really good conversation, a really good joint decision. And I felt comfortable with that plan. 
in theatre, I had a wonderful anaesthetist who distracted me with chat about the FA Cup. Some of you know I'm a football fan and although my team wasn't playing the next day, it was the time of year where the FA Cup final was and so we had a great football conversation and then suddenly my baby daughter was here. So it was exactly the same outcome. I had both times an emergency caesarean section, a healthy baby girl, the same hospital So I had that opportunity for the VBAC, vaginal birth after caesarean attempt. I'd felt listened to, I'd felt supported, I'd felt valued and positively involved in my care. As predicted, my daughter was much bigger. And I was disappointed, but I was so glad I'd given my body its chance. And this time around, I was able to accept what had happened to me it felt like it just wasn't meant to be rather than feeling like I'd been forcing my body to do something it didn't want to do. So the aftermath of this birth was very different, much more positive. So now we come to the zesty bit. These births were 19 and 21 years ago respectively Yet I remember them like they were yesterday, every detail and the memories of those feelings, how I felt each time. So women's experience of birth stays with them. It's a lifelong memory. I remember listening once to a radio programme where they'd interviewed women at the end of their lives in a hospice and asked for their memories of birth, and they gave strikingly vivid descriptions and memories of how people had talked to them and behaved, and how they'd cared for them or not. For me, what at face value looked like the same clinical experience, the same clinical outcome, emergency caesarean and healthy baby daughter, were like chalk and cheese from an experience perspective. It wasn't a sudden epiphany, for me the experience was important I guess it brought home something that I already knew deep down and it resurfaced many years later as I started to champion improvements in women's experience of maternity care so the zesty bit is experience is important it's as important as safety in fact the two are very closely linked there's a lot of evidence that good patient experience and I use the word patient in inverted commas, and good staff experience for that matter, correlate very closely with safety. So if you're looking after women, the niceties of being kind to them, caring for them, just the general respect for them and what they're going through, listening to what they're asking you, and behaving in a compassionate way is really important. And it's equally important to behave like that to your colleagues and other staff within the maternity service. And if you're a woman using maternity services, it's really important to help us by feeding back about your experience. So if you've had a good experience, feed back so that positively reinforces that behaviour and rewards those staff that are doing a great job. And if you've had a negative experience, let us know 
because we may not have perceived that that's how it was received and how that felt to you. And a simple way you can do this is via your local maternity voice partnership, often who have a Facebook page or Twitter account, or by writing more formally to your maternity unit about your experience of care afterwards, or through the friends and family test, which although not an ideal way of feeding back about maternity care, does give you the opportunity to write free text. And it's often the free text that gives us rich information about how women are experiencing their care. So feedback and help us so that we can help improve experience for others. So that's today's zesty bit. So I do hope you've enjoyed listening to the OBS pod. If you have, do like, subscribe or leave a review and join me again to explore more about the life of an NHS obstetrician. I'm finding it really exciting to have people listening and give me feedback about what they've found interesting. So please do recommend the OBS pod to other friends, colleagues or people who you think might find it interesting. I'd love it if you'd share with me what you've enjoyed about listening and if you've done anything differently as a result. I can be found on Twitter at FWMaternity and at the OBSPod. And please do check the MATEXP hashtag, hashtag M-A-T-E-X-P and the website matexp.org.uk for more information and ideas on how to improve women's experience of maternity care. Finally, I'd like to reassure you that I take confidentiality very seriously and although I'm talking about experiences from my working life, I'm taking great pains to make sure that I anonymise the stories and talk in more general terms so that I keep confidentiality of my women I currently care for and have cared for in the past very safe. Many thanks for listening.